Are you Chelsea going to make the top four this season? No, no way. They're really struggling at the moment. As much chance as Derby making the playoffs. <laughs> oh, that is, that is low. That is definitely low. <laughs> Welcome captives and captive friends to episode 5 of the Global Captive Podcast, supported by legacy specialists R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. My guest co-host this week is among the biggest names of the international captive industry. He's got more fingers in more pies than an industrial baker. It's Malcolm Cutts Watson. Malcolm, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. And I'm glad you said biggest name and not biggest waste. (laughs) Well, one goes with the other, I'm I'm pretty... (laughs) With all those pies. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Malcolm, you're probably best known for the latter part of your career when you were based in Guernsey uh, and chairman of the Willis Global Captive Practice. However, I've regularly bumped into fellow captive professionals who have worked with you in Bermuda and Vermont. Uh, so please, just for the benefit of our listeners, briefly give us a bit of background on, on your career. Okay, well, I suppose I'm a failed zookeeper and toilet cleaner. Those, those were <laughs> my degree in you know, a university was uh, zoology and I couldn't get a job there. And my first job out of university was a toilet cleaner. Um, but then I had to retrain as an accountant and somehow managed to convince Johnson & Higgins in Bermuda that I knew something about insurance, so I got a job there, and I was lucky enough to work with Brian Hall, who's one of the godfathers of captives. Um, and that was in the 80s at the time when Ace and XL were taking off, which were two of the most successful group captives, which I know you're going to be talking about later. Yeah, exactly. Um, I then got asked to go up to Vermont and help grow the the new industry there and uh, had a great time there. Uh, recruited David Provost into the, the insurance world and of course we know what happened to him. Yeah. Um, you ended at, up on the Global Captive podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> that's, that's, that's the ultimate the... accolade, isn't it? <laughs> um, and in those days, the VCIA conference was held in a small ski chalet in, in Stowe and there were about 50 people attending. So that was, that was pretty early days. And then Len Krause came along and things took off. And then I moved to Guernsey, and after a while, Willis asked me to run the international captive practice. Um, we set up the first captive manager in Malta, and in those days, Malta wasn't part of the EU, so yeah. it was an offshore jurisdiction, and we had to convert that onto an onshore location. And about six years ago, I started getting interested in China. Uh, I really thought there was a, a huge opportunity for captive business there, so started visiting that regularly and retired from corporate life four years ago and then set up my consulting business. Yeah, so just on the consulting business, what is it you're trying to achieve with that consultancy and what is keeping you busy today? All right, well, that sounds like a plug to me. <laughs> Cuts Watson Consulting. Um, four other experienced captive practitioners and myself all had the same idea that we were ready to retire from corporate life, but we still wanted to put something back into the captive industry. So we set up a consulting business and we're basically available to use our expertise to help solve issues uh, to work with captive stakeholders so that can be uh, owners it can be captive managers maybe experiencing a situation they haven't come across before could be regulatory uh, agencies could be promotional agencies could be uh, service providers looking to get into the captive business Uh, and we've got a pretty varied portfolio all over the world Um, and it's fun and 
I must have some free time because my golf handicap's coming down at the moment. <laughs> okay, and, and you made it over to London as well. So um, one, one of the areas we hear a lot about at the moment is companies' value nowadays is increasingly based on their intangible assets rather than, than the physical. And from the multiple global risk reports released each year and just from reading the news or, or watching the weather, or, or you know, we all know climate, we see it out our window and changes to climate, it's increasingly becoming a threat to commerce and society. I shared recently uh, on LinkedIn some Munich Re comments regarding the California wildfires and directly linking them with climate change. And I think Munich Re were the first insurer to, to do that publicly. How do you rate uh, the insurance market's response to climate change and what role, if any, can captives play as organisations look for protection? Well, it's a good job I brought my soapbox with me because <laughs> I can now get on it and start preaching. Um, it, it's a subject that's quite dear to my heart and I don't know what your views are on climate change and whether it's man-made or not and in a way that's not really relevant what's relevant is if you look at the uh, level of natural catastrophic disasters over the last couple of years they've been well above average Um, I think Aon's number was close to 300 billion dollars now of that uh, only about a third is insured so there's a huge insurance protection gap and then when you look at some of the less developed countries actually the level of insurance there is even lower. Um, So those are the direct costs. Then the indirect costs, which come from unemployment, healthcare, migration. Um, And for for a lot of these countries, it's it's a financial nightmare because they just haven't got the resources or the ability to borrow the money to fix the infrastructure. And uh, post-disaster aid, relief, doesn't really work. It, it, it's too sporadic. It's, mm. it's uncertain. And it's after, after the fact as well. Yeah. Um, so increasingly, supernationals are now looking at how you build resilience into the financial model. And you know, as part of the Paris Agreement, there's a, there's a mention there of building resilience. Uh, the UN have made reference to it. The World Bank, I think, is increasing their budget up to 50 million for the next five years in terms of investing in this resilience. And, and what does that mean? I don't think it means just insurance products. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think it means more than that. How do you build something that's actually going to be there for the long term and can respond effectively? So uh, what I think you're going to see are risk pools. And again, we're talking about group captives, which I know is yep. something we're going to talk about later. Uh, either con- uh, various countries coming together in a region to form some sort of mechanism or municipals within one country forming some sort of risk pooling. Um, and and we've seen a bit of that in the Caribbean, haven't we? With, yeah, with, with I was going to say there are some examples already. I mean, there's the African Resources, yep. which is uh, insuring uh, and protecting a number of African states. There's the Caribbean Catastrophic Fund, uh, and there's one down in the South Pacific as yes, well. Yes, there is. Uh, so these are happening, and I think this is going to become a much more common theme. Now, where, where do captives play a role in this? Well, I think these are effectively group captives. Um, and what you need is a vehicle that will collate and consolidate all the various risks, allow you to retain a certain amount of risk, the first loss fund, and then access either the reinsurance market or the capital markets to lay the rest of the risk off. Now, that is a captive model. Yeah. Um, and, you, you know, why a captive? Well, first of all, it's, a, it's a, a legal entity. So you've got all the protections that you have there with memorandum articles, audits, you know, a board, things like that. 
why, why set it up in a captive domicile where you've got all the infrastructure there, you've got the experience, you've got the managers, everyone else, the auditors are used to dealing with it. Regulators are used to it. They understand the risk-based capital approach. Um, so they can, they can look after it in, in and oversee it in an appropriate way. Um, and, it, and a captive basically is bilingual. It can, it can either play in the insurance world or it can play in the capital markets world. Yeah. So it, it allows you to take the risk and it allows you to package it up and then pass it on to the appropriate marketplace. So to me, it, it, it's a great opportunity for the captive industry to actually do something that's really positive, that was, which will solve a major global problem and gets us away from this sort of discussion about tax avoidance and 831B issues. Yeah. So to me, it's a no-brainer. It's, it's something that I would really encourage captive domiciles and captive associations to really research to see how they can help. In, in general terms, if you're talking about group captives, I think my experience is there are three success factors. The first is there's got to be an external threat. Now, that may be a hard market maybe climate change, it may be regulatory change, but there's something that's got to stay, change the status quo. Um, the second is you need a, a sponsor, ideally someone on the inside who's trusted. Mm. Um, and in this case, with the um, risk pools, it's probably going to be a supranational, like a, a, you know, a development bank or a world bank. And then thirdly, you need some mechanism of quality assurance or risk management so that the people can be, the insureds can be sure, assured they're getting treated fairly. And I think if you look at those, that model, that ten, tends to give you a successful outcome. So in the second half of this episode, we're going to have a debate I hosted at the Seeker International Conference on Captive Management, where I was joined by Paul Owens, Jason Flaxbeard and Gary Osborne. But first, we have a discussion on group captives in the United States. I sat down with Nick Hentages, co-CEO of the leading consultancy on group captives, Captive Resources, and client Mark Gold, CEO of Gold Construction Inc., an active member of one of Captive Resources' group captives. Nick began by outlining why group captives have proved such a popular concept in the U.S. I'm going to say it's the better mousetrap, right? Mm. We found a better way to do insurance. And, and that's by bringing our, our clientele, the members of the captive, the owners of the captive, into the process and, and helping them understand how it works and how it can work for them and how they can participate and benefit from this concept that was developed 35 years ago by my partner, George Russo, as far as the group captive model. Um, how it can really benefit them. Yeah. And Mark, your own company is a member of a group captive, uh, National Contractors Insurance Limited. Could you outline what National Contractors insures, its size, and why Gold Construction chose to join it in the first place? So we have approximately 185 owners. We are $86 million in premium, and we insure general liability, workers' comp, and auto. And uh, w what I tell people when I'm talking to them about the possibility of joining a captive is that you have to start in the process by understanding can the company beat the actuarial tables. Yep. So uh, fundamentally, what, as we know, that, that means can we do better than the average person? And if we can, then is a, it, we're leaving money on the table. That's what contractors call it. You go to bid day and between you and the low bidder and the second bidder is how much money you left on the table. And um, so as a contractor, 
we have insurance as a profit center, which is not what you would normally do buying traditional insurance. And what benefits has, has National Contractors provided, uh, provided to your company that you wouldn't have had the opportunity to find by continuing in the traditional insurance market? So the first is cost. As you, uh, as you get safer and you make a conscious decision to succeed in the captive industry, you're essentially saying, I'm going to be safer than the average contractor. And by doing that, I am going to lower my insurance costs. So we are judged individually each year. The, there's a loss pick per company, and that's a function of your last five years of losses. So if you control your losses, you control your insurance costs. I'm intrigued. I'm always intrigued by the group captive concept because what you find is you often, uh, you're often you a CEO of, of, of yes. gold, gold Construction, and so you're not an insurance guy previously, presumably. Well, I, I knew nothing about insurance until I got involved, and once I took on a committee position, I started learning the insurance business, and so now I could talk to you uh, pretty much like the average insurance no, broker. No, out no, there Richard, in the world. I, not the average. He's one of the best insurance guys I've met. Okay, yeah. This guy understands insurance through and through, and and I would say that there are a number of our members who dig into this concept and, and want to understand it and, and do understand it extremely well. And that's that's fun for us to work with. Yeah, I was going to say, because what, what I find intrigued by that is obviously you're a business person, you're a successful business person, and you've now learned and obviously embraced uh, knowing much more about the insurance market. And that will be to the benefit of your company, right? And to the benefit of how you use the insurance market, including the group captive. Well, I believe that our success at Gould Construction is because I am a math guy and early on, buying captive insurance, I understood what it took to get my rate and what I was going to do to get that lowered and how to do that. And so by understanding insurance, I've been able to turn this into a profit center. A general stereotype of group captive members, Nick, has been they tend to be middle market businesses, not large enough to have a, a standalone single parent captive. With the amount of premium running through your group captives today, and I think it's uh, closing in on 2.5 billion that can't be the case right now it can't just be the the, the area for, for smaller companies to get involved in how, how large do your members tend to go so we still say we're a, a solution for the middle market the definition of middle market has changed yeah right? 25 years ago the middle market was maybe a hundred thousand in work to, work comp gl and auto premium now to, to maybe two million right in that pre, the same same coverages uh, we still will write smaller accounts, 100000 not as often as we used to, but our largest account pays over $35 million in premium, individual account in a group captive. So we can handle accounts very large in size, and, and my friends that sell single parents will debate that with me all day long, and I'd love to have that debate, and we'll, we can talk about the reasons why. But it's, um, it's become, uh, I think we have over 500 accounts that pay in excess of a million dollars in premium and probably over 10 accounts that pay in excess of 10 million in premium. So those companies have looked at both options and made the decision that this option, the group captive side, still works better for them. Now, I'm not saying every account that's the case, yeah. but in in those examples it was a better and there, there's a few reasons for that yeah so let's talk about a few of those reasons so in the cases where it does make sense to, to be in a group captive structure rather than have a, have a single parent what, what can some of those reasons be there, there's two main ones collateral 
Um, in the group captive, we build collateral on a formula-driven basis. So they, after three years, they have a really good idea what their collateral requirement is going to be, and it stays very consistent going forward. In a large deductible or a, a single parent, that collateral is based on what the fronting carrier is, is going to ask of them and can stack and stack and stack and stack over multiple years. Yeah. The second piece of it is we close policy years. Um, we've got a couple different mechanisms that we use, an internal tail fund or innovations or commutations, but that's, uh, we close policy years anywhere from five to seven, eight years out. And most single parents, I think, struggle with that. So we have to have competitive operating costs going in. It has to be the, the terms of the program have to be competitive. But I think those two issues, collateral and, and predictability of collateral, and that knowing that policy years will be closed out really impacts as a positive uh, impact for us when they're considering which program to go into. Um, you, we mentioned that you're closing in on 2.5 billion annual premium through your, your, your collection of group captives. I presume the next target would be 3 billion. How do you get to 3 billion? Is it, is it expanding existing captives? Is it adding on new group captives? Is it bringing new members in? Is it increasing the premium spend by existing members? It, All of the above, yeah. right? <laughs> so we're starting four new captives uh, the first quarter of this year. So we have 35 right now. We'll have 39. Um, I think our the, the, that, the last one of the new programs will start in May. So, yes, we're adding new captives, both heterogeneous and homogeneous. Uh, we are organically growing our existing programs. Uh, there's just a tremendous amount of interest in this concept. And, and then we have the ability, because of our size and the size of our captives, to, to look at larger accounts. Fifteen years ago, we couldn't look at a $10 million individual you know, premium account. Today, we could put a $10 million account in very easily in a number of our programs. So it's, it's a combination of all of those things. The Global Captive Podcast is supported by R&Q, the award-winning provider of exit solutions for legacy liabilities and companies in runoff. R&Q can provide a wide range of solutions and has A-rated paper across the United States and Europe. LPTs, innovations, business transfers and acquisition are all frequently used and tailored to the seller's requirement whether in runoff or fully active but seeking greater efficiency. If you have legacy, you should talk to R&Q. Welcome back to part two of episode five of the Global Captive podcast, where I am joined in the studio by Malcolm Cutts Watson. During four decades in captive management, what are your observations as to how it has changed in that time? Well, I, I think my takeaways are really that things haven't changed that much in the four decades I've been involved in captive management. Just the names and, 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 the, and, the, and the brass plaques on top of the buildings. Well, I'm talking more about the processes. You know, effectively, the captive manager is squeezed. On, 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 on above them, they've got the regulator and they've got the captive owner. And then below them, they've got the various stakeholders. That could be the insureds, the fronting companies, the brokers, the asset managers. Um, and in the middle, they're very dependent on the information that those stakeholders provide to them. And then they're basically putting that information into their own systems. And then once they've done that, they then have to manipulate that information to either pass it on to the reinsurance market 
or provide it to the regulator or the shareholder. Um, so it's a very inefficient way of doing business. And also, it, 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 you know, there's, there's a high degree of inaccuracy because you're inputting information several times. Um, I didn't realize it at the time, but when I was thinking, well, this is a problem, there needs to be just one platform that everyone works to. I was basically talking about blockchain. Yeah, it, okay. just that it wasn't there. Now we're into the fourth industrial revolution. To me, the, the obvious way forward is the captive managers have got to embrace blockchain type technology and get those other stakeholders to buy into it as well so that they, they are reducing the amount of admin work they're doing and reconciling and checking and they can focus on the value added side of things. Interesting. Well, to debate the current captive models, particularly the trade-off between broker-owned and independents, I sat down with Paul Owens and Jason Flaxbeard, leaders of the broker-owned managers Willis Towers Watson and Beecher Carlson, respectively, and Gary Osborne, who led the independent USA Risk Group for more than 20 years and is now Vice President at Risk Partners. Gary, we'll come to the benefits in a moment, but what are some of the major challenges that independent captive managers face, in your opinion, as opposed to the large broker-owned ones? Well, we're not um, fed from a large brokerage family, so we have to go and find find our own networking. And marketing captives has always been one of the great challenges, is where do you you go to find new captives? Um, As an independent, we've usually tried to focus on the second-tier brokers, um, not necessarily have a, a captive practice because it's tried to do cold calling or so forth has been, a, I've tried it, it doesn't work. So uh, that is the biggest thing is that we've got to build relationships, not just with the clients, we've got to build confident relationships with the brokers and that's really where we've always tried to make that business model work. Can you call those them. brokers second tier to their face? We call them national brokers or the, the non ones that don't have captive, captive okay. agencies. Right, that may be the reason why. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, don't, I can imagine as well that a, a, cold call would, a cold call on captives is quite a complex cold call to make. Well, I've definitely tried it, and I ended up with one that took me six years to realize it wasn't going to go. So yes, <laughs> you learned that model didn't, wasn't terribly effective. Because um, generally, who, who makes the decision? You get the risk manager, and the risk manager is all interested. And then the CFO, if you don't get that connection, it doesn't usually take off. And, and, and Paul, in, in Europe particularly, the toll on um, independent captive managers has been, has been quite tough. We've got probably only a handful left in Europe, uh, a couple in Luxembourg. I don't think there's any left in Ireland, really. Um, Malta's got one or two, although one of them is now part of SRS. Why do you think we've seen the kind of almost a disappearance of independent captive managers in, in Europe? I think primarily it's, to, it's, it's all about the amount of services you now have to provide and the backup and the, the, the number of people. The, uh, and the larger players are the only people that can afford to do this and provide those services. Um, I will go back and challenge the, the, your earlier statement about uh, broker owned, the broker-owned model. Uh, if you look at the business, I think maybe not um, for Jason, but a very small proportion of our business actually comes through the broker network. Um, and that, that even surprised me when we did the, did the analysis. Uh, lots of clients actually want a different uh, capital manager to their broker. Uh, it creates that independence, it creates the double check and the second pair of eyes. Um, so I don't think just being owned by a broker, a big broker, um, uh, helps in any way because we, you know, we are getting, lo- we're getting more of our business from outside sources. But I think it's about the services and uh, that you can bring 
to that relationship. And I presume one of the challenges of, of the broker own model is that you may have some some feeding from there, but often you've got to still educate the brokers maybe who aren't sure what benefit the captive will bring them and their client relationship. Surely it can be a struggle sometimes internally to actually get that that feeding I, happening. I think from our point of view, all we want is the broker to open the door because the broker doesn't necessarily understand it. Um, and they often see the captive as a threat to their own relationship. So we we just like the broker to open the door, and then we'll take it from there. Yeah, Jason? Well, I, I agree, actually, uh, with, with that. We, we have around about 100 captives under management, and 40 or 50 of them actually come from other brokers, just for that very reason. It's it's a it's a double check. It's a, you know it's a requirement for us to uh, you know to, to validate the program that's in existence. And so we, uh, we we tend to be seen as kind of the policeman of the program. So if, if they can get through us and their brokerage uh, partner, then uh, yeah, the risk manager seems to have, uh, will believe he's done a, a terrific job, which he usually has. I mean, I can tell there was many times where. Contrary to your view, but there were people who come to us. Um, in my previous life, we did the NFL captive, and we got it specifically because there was all these owners that had Marsh, Aon, Willis, and so we were the only one that nobody else had. So they were like, "Well, you're it because we're not conflicting with twelve other people that have got twelve other." So Arizona might have had Marsh, yeah. or Patriots had Willis, but by being us, we weren't offending anybody. So that has happened. But I mean, I think there's such a dearth of independence now that the, somebody like Beecher is seen as a viable candidate because um, you're a good size broker. I use the term second tier, I won't use that no, term. The no, next no. tier down from the globals, probably the, yeah. the national broker would be the yeah. better term. Um, and that's who we were competing with. And surprisingly enough, one of the things, um, I mean, my new company, we're a $6 billion, part of a $6 billion family organization. That's one of the reasons I went there is that we've actually got a lot of willingness to put resources into it. So to be a startup independent in some ways is pretty brave to do it, but I've got the backing of a very large, long-term player that is quite interested. They're, because they're, their business is the sort of automotive space, they're quite interested in adding insurance as an option to their to their portfolio of companies, and so they're they're definitely a long-term player. And so I'm getting the resources to take what is a small startup manager in some ways and grow it. And Gary, you've been pretty good at building relationships over your years, and that's one of the strengths that you've always had as, as an independent, and just as Gary Osborne, you're just a nice fellow to do business with. It's it, the relationships have they helped you going forward as you as you're starting to grow again? Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is absolutely. Um, the, the brokers I was dealing with before that um, had built a comfortable level with me and my team or something are, are willing to come back and find me again because they've got a certain confidence that I know what I'm doing and will have enough team and support to make sure that I'm, not, I'm keeping their clients compliant and uh, meeting their needs. Um, and a lot of times these national brokers <laughs> have quite a bit of these resources as well. And um, we've always been very careful to recognize that the broker is a key partner for us as the independent captain manager. And, Utilize their services and their backroom to do some of the things that maybe we're missing compared to the route. Maybe, maybe one of the, the, the ways to look at this as well is personally, I think the industry is, is becoming per, um, polarized. There are two big behemoths of, of operations out there. A on a Marsh. A on a Marsh. Especially though JLT is going to disappear. They are just enormous, aren't they? Willis Towns Watson is not a big player in this field. And we, you could actually say we're a, we just happen to be a sort of an independent. Owned by a big brokerage. But that, this is the interesting thing I've always found fascinating that all of you, all captain mm-hmm. managers, whether it's Marsh, Aon, and I'm not here to, 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 to comment, but and Artex particularly is a great example. They're desperate to be seen to be independent, mm. even if they're not independent. You know, Heritage, which was 
the Guernsey operation, which is hard to export, they really pushed the, the independent thing. And so when they were bought by Gallagher's and, and put into Artex, they, conti- they continue to say they're independent, independent. I, I can understand why they do it, but it's not, it's, not, um, it's not genuine, in my opinion. I mean, I'm sure, Jason, as well, like you, you take it, the, the, the model for a broker owned is you take the advantage of being broker owned, you take that feed if, when you do have a feed, but you also try and sell the independent yarn as well. Let's chip in a second. The big issue is, can you really state you've got a Chinese wall? I mean, some of the brokers I talked to are like, we've worked with JLT, we've worked with Beecher and Carlson, and if they prove reliable that the broker doesn't come knocking on my client's door, we'll continue to use them. So it's that, do these organizations, and I'll obviously let you chip in here, do you have that Chinese wall, or do you have that mistake happen where suddenly you get a client and there's somebody from the Beecher and Carlson brokerage side goes knocking on the door? And that would be death for you, I think. So I'm sure you're trying very hard for that to happen. Yeah, we, that, that doesn't happen uh, hardly at all. We, we're almost a separate unit, as Paul mentioned. It's, it's, uh, the captive unit sits, sits on its own. Um, but we, we are integrated with the brokerage. We, we do understand what it means to broker an account. We, we understand what the insurance market wants. And, and we, we, we have to know if, if the market's hard and the market's soft. Um, you know which carriers are going to be, uh, you know, looking for price increases or, or or attachment increases or wording decreases or whatever it might be, because we're, we're at the end of the day we're all relationship-based problem solvers, and so the more you know, the better place you are to actually help your client in that respect. So it's for me, it's relationship-based. One of the areas I want to move on to is where we see what what do the future captain managers look like? What will a captain management firm look like in? 10 years, and not, I don't mean just Marshall and I have bought them all. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, what would be the role of the captain manager? Would it go, because I feel like, and you know, I'm much newer, you guys have all been between you and the captain manager, well, for about three centuries. And <laughs> I've been in it for five years, or the captain world for five years. But from what I understand of the history, captain manager started off as accountants in specialized domiciles. In the last 10, 15 years, you've seen it evolve to having much more of a consultancy-led um, operation where the kind of rock stars, if you will, of the captive, management space are on the road and they're meeting clients and they're studying <coughs> captive services and the consulting on maybe wider projects whereas the accountants stay in Vermont or Bermuda or Cayman and, and that's not meant to be disparaging it's just the way I see it I feel like we you're now going to see a divide where some captive managers are going to become more consultants and some captive managers will just concentrate on being captive managers in domiciles I think we have to define what consulting is because a yeah, captive manager is Running the account, running the accounts, doing the regulatory stuff, but also the clients looking for a little bit more. Is that consulting or is that about captain management? I would actually say it's captain management. It's doing what you do every day, but using your expertise to enhance what the client's doing or say, oh, you shouldn't be doing this. Um, yeah, there are these big consulting projects which are maybe restructuring five or six captives together, but actually it's the captain managers who know what to do. So, um, yeah, there is consulting, but I think you can't, apps, certain types of consulting, you cannot divorce it away from the manager. As an independent as well, we've often tried to say, you don't, other than auto and workers' comp, you really don't need a front. Mm-hmm. And even with auto, there's ways around it. So it's like, let's try and see if we can do this direct and take a whole lot more control, use reinsurance markets <coughs> and other mechanisms and do something a little different. And that's maybe where the independents can have a bit more difference is that we're um, allowed to think a little more creatively. Sometimes we have to think a bit more creatively. If we're up against the guys that can click a finger and generate your know, workers' comp deductible policy, um, that's not necessarily going to be me. Yeah. I, I can't compete with Marsh and Billis on some of those more straightforward, large, substantial global programs, but I can compete on the sort of more edgy and different ones that are trying to break new ground. Sorry, I, I think you've actually described managing a captive. 
it's not consulting. No. If you were running an ordinary company, these are the things you would be doing. Um, it's managing a captive. So it's not consulting. It just happens to be one off or a specific project. But it, it, and that's, you're saying, questioning what is it going to look like. I think there's going to be more of that. But the, the, the fundamental is you're running a company. Yeah, Jason, how, how do you define captive consulting? Um, well, I, I see captive consulting as, um, honestly, it's, it's doing stuff that's outside of what, what normal captives do. I mean, I, I, the, the accounting, the regulatory, the compliance, all that kind of good stuff is what I would call captive management. Anything that involves going out to the marketplace, buying reinsurance, or doing, doing things in a little different way, I, I find that to be more consultative, you know, changing things with a different ROI th- to the group. So the ROI from a captive manager is... You know, to to its parent is is, is low. I, I, I'll be honest. The three of us have probably cut each other's throats many times on pricing, and um, to the client's benefit. So you know, well done uh, to the clients. But um, I find that anything that allows you to go outside of your existing management low margin model and create a little bit more uh, thinking that allows you to to provide a structure that, that that thinks slightly differently and gets you paid in a different way. I see that as consulting. Malcolm, reflecting on that discussion and your own experience, how do you see the future of captive management and the operating model for captives more generally? Well, I thought it was interesting that the panellists really were talking about market access and they were talking maybe about who within the captive management operation does particular work. There wasn't much talk there to me in terms of improving processes, which I think is where the future lies. And I think, you know, the the organizations that are going to invest into a blockchain platform, and there are a number of industry models now available. I mean, a lot of people have heard about InsureWave, which Maersk rolled out. That that is a platform which is going to be available to the captive industry generally. And I think that's the way forward. So you won't have the, the heavy upfront investment costs, but you'll have access to that technology. And I think whoever starts putting that in place will get first mover advantage and, and will be very successful. Um, the, other, the other sort of criticism I hear, because I now sit as a non-exec director on a number of companies, is, is that the captives, captive managers really are uh, too involved in the administration and, and they're not providing the strategic advice. I, you know, I think the panelists called it consulting. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think that, that is a challenge. And I think, um, you know, when you're a prospect then you meet all the top talent within the captive manager. Uh, as soon as you're a client, you're given a, a service team, a very good service team, who will do a very good administrative job. But I, I suspect some of the clients feel they're not getting the attention they would like. And maybe if you improve the processes, that will free up time to allow the, the more experienced people to be able to spend some time looking at the, the captive and getting the best value. And Board meetings now tend to have a very high uh, percentage of governance and compliance agenda items. And really, you don't have time for the forward thinking. And I think that's the other challenge, is is to give yourself enough time for the board to consider these issues rather than just really a stewardship report. Well, that is it for episode five of the Global Captive podcast. And thank you to all of our guests this week, Nick Henstridge, Mark Gold, Jason Flaxbeard, Paul Owens and Gary Osborne and of course you, Malcolm. <laughs>